0: The Gospel of John, chapter 2, the first 11 verses. The incident recorded in that second chapter of John, brothers and sisters, from verses 1 to 11, is of course an incident which follows straight after the Lord had left John the Baptist on the banks of the River Jordan and proceeded to Cana of Galilee. So it follows in chronological order as far as our study is concerned and as I say, we're going to try as hard as we can to stick to that order. Extremely interesting incident is this one. Commonly known, of course, as the first of the eight signs of John. Now, most of you will know, of course, what those signs are and the particular significance that John gives to those miracles. You you might remember that John uses the word, of course, a different Greek word for a miracle than does Matthew, Mark or Luke. He chooses to call them signs, as the Greek word means. Because John wants to tell us, brethren and sisters, that these miracles were not just miracles. But they had a spiritual import. Now that doesn't mean to say that Matthew, Mark and Luke didn't do the same thing. They did. None of them believed that miracles were performed for miracles' sake. But John wants us to particularly note that because his gospel is so different than the other three because he writes mainly to stress the deep spiritual import of all that Jesus said and did. John above the others, of course does that. So he chooses this word which he uses 17 times in his his gospel record to impress us that these miracles were signs. And there were of course eight of them. Now we've got no uh, reason this evening to enumerate the eight signs. But just that we might understand, brethren and sisters, they were meant to be read and understood in, or, in, in, the, in order of enumeration. You'll notice in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, This beginning of signs did Jesus in, in, in Cana of Galilee. So John tells us that this is the beginning of them. And in chapter 4, we read, for example, at the end of chapter 4, when we come to the second sign, John makes the point again. This is again the second sign that Jesus did when he would come out of Judea, Judea into Galilee. Now John doesn't go on and enumerate the third and the fourth, fifth, sixth and seventh and eighth signs. He doesn't do it in that way. But he, he gives us sufficient information there to tell us that he expects us to read them in enumeration, in order, that we might understand the progression of those signs. And it's a very wonderful study indeed to take those eight signs as a singular study and to take them through the Gospel of John and see the development of the work of God in the Lord Jesus Christ as he performed each one of those signs. So what we've got before us this evening is of course, like all other scripture I suppose, of a particular significance. It's a sign, brethren and sisters. Now we're going to just recapitulate a little bit because I want to show you the relevance of this particular sign in what we said when we were last together. Now, it's the purpose of going over a little bit of this matter. Now, you'll remember we made this point, as John made it rather, that it's John who tells us almost day for day the first week in the Lord's ministry. remember that? Come back to chapter 1, and we'll just recapitulate that. Now, John is careful to give us the, almost a day by day, a record of the first week in our Lord's life. For example, in chapter 1 and verse 19, we read that this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And we have on that day, of course, John's testimony as to his own worth. In verse 29, we read about the next day, which is day two. Again in verse 35, we read about, and again the next day after, which is day three. And in verse 43, the day following which would be day four. And we open up this evening, brethren, and sisters, in chapter two and verse one, and the third day. Now that, of course, can't be the third day from his ministry because we're already up to day four. It means the seventh day because it's the third day from the last one mentioned. And so John is giving us almost a day-by-day account of the Lord's first week of his public ministry. And it culminated in a marriage. And that in itself is of the height of significance, brethren and sisters. It is interesting to note that in the 12th chapter of John and verse 1, John records the fact that Jesus came to Bethany six days before the Passover and then gives us a day-by-day account of his last week. And so you've got a first week and a last week which are given almost day by day by John and in both of those periods the mother of our Lord features prominently. And I believe there's a tremendous significance in that. And John, by the way, never calls her by her right name. He never names her. Every reference to, to the Lord's mother in the Gospel of John is to the mother of Jesus. He never calls her Mary. And she features prominently in that first week and in the last week. And I believe there's a significance in that, as we shall see. But it's also very interesting, first of all, to note that that first week finished in a marriage. Now, that is of the highest significance. Now, we've read, of course, that some say, well, there is the, the anti-typical significance to the marriage of Adam and Eve that they were married, that they were presented on the seventh day. They were not, brothers and sisters, they were married on the sixth day. And we have the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ to that effect, along with the testimony of Genesis. But on the sixth day, God created male and female. And Jesus said the very act of creation of one two bodies out of one body was in itself an act of marriage. And they were created and married on the sixth day. And it was a dismal failure, wasn't it? Not their marriage, perhaps, but certainly the union together didn't bring about happiness and contentment, brothers and sisters. It led to most disagreeable things coming upon the earth. And here we've got a wonderful marriage on the seventh day. And we're going to see in a moment how really marvellous that is because in this particular scene here before us we're going to see the bridegroom and the bride. Now I've made those points because I now want to bring you John chapter 3 and you remember that in John chapter 3 when John's disciples came to him concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, John said in the third chapter, this is what John the Baptist said, recorded in the third chapter of John's Gospel in verse 29, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. So in order to impress his own disciples with the importance of the Lord Jesus Christ above himself, he said, look, it is clearly obvious that whoever has got the bride is the bridegroom. Now, just put your hand there for a while because we'll come back to that. But again, we come back to Matthew chapter 9. You've heard all this before, but I want to show you the relevance of this in a moment. But in Matthew chapter 9, we have a later incident when the disciples of John the Baptist came to the Lord Jesus Christ and they asked him a question. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. In other words, brethren and sisters, what he was saying to them is this they come up with this question as to why they fasted and his disciples didn't. And there would have been in that, I believe, a hint on their part of superiority because they did not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all their lip service to John, they did not obey their own master because he told them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the answer they got to their question was, you ought to listen to what your own master said. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. That's what he said. And there was the Lord's rejoinder to those disciples of John. Now, thus far, we've said nothing new. But I deliberately went over that, brethren and sisters, because those statements have a great relevance to that marriage in Canaan of Galilee. Let me show you. Come back, keep your head in Matthew 9. Come back to John chapter 3. What brought forth this question on the part of John's disciples to John the Baptist himself? Well, look at chapter 3 again and now let's read from verse 25. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about, about what? Purifying. And at that first wedding in Cana of Galilee, brethren and sisters, there were six water pots of stone there used for the purifying of the Jews. There was a connection, wasn't there? And then we come down to verse 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Who is the bride in question? Well, look at verse 26. They come unto John, and his disciples come unto John, and said unto him, Master, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, Behold the same baptizer, and all men come to him. He that hath the bride. Who's the bride, brethren and sisters? All of those coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who they are. And there's John's identification of the bride. They're coming to the master. Don't you know that he's stealing the limelight from you? You gave witness to him. You shouldn't have done that. Now they're all flocking to him. him everyone's going to him. Well, says John, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. There they are. And so you see, brothers and sisters, when those disciples left John, as John stood and Jesus walked and the disciples looked, and as John says, behold the Lamb of God, and they moved away from John and they followed the Lord Jesus Christ, there is your bride. By John's own interpretation of it the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are his bride. We know that from Ephesians 5, but look at it in that context. All men follow him. Truly they do. Well, says John, he that hath that bride is the bridegroom. That features in that first miracle, because there were six disciples there with our Lord Jesus Christ, as there were six water pots there full of water. Now come back to Matthew chapter 9. Look at the context of this statement. So the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've just read before, in verse 15, reminds them about the fact of the bride and the bridegroom. And then he gives them a couple of little parables. The second one in verse 17 is this. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine in a new bottle, and both are preserved. And both are preserved. Both the wine and the bottles. You know, brothers and sisters, he made that water into wine. And there were six water pots of stone there. And as we'll read in a moment, It says Jesus also and his disciples were invited to that wedding. And there were six of them. And the new wine which poured from him in his teaching, in his love towards them, of which wine was a symbol, filled those men and they didn't break and the wine was not spilled. But he couldn't get it into John's disciples because they were so taken up with the old tradition. And they would not accept that new wine. So the comment of John and the comment of our Lord Jesus Christ was filled with significance from that first sign in the the wedding of Cana of Galilee, where the bride and bridegroom were identified and those who could hold the new wine were identified as as against those who couldn't. And it's a remarkable testimony to the wonder of the Scripture, brothers and sisters, that those things are in that context. As John tells them, the Lord reminds them and both not allude back to that wonderful day, that seventh day, when it became palpably obvious with anyone with eyes to see that the Lord Jesus Christ was the bridegroom in question. And when we come back to that second chapter of John, we're told at the end of that miracle the purpose of it. The purpose of that miracle, brothers and sisters, in chapter 2 and verse 11 is expressed like this. This beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. You know, whatever glory had been manifested before, whether it be by prophet, or by the psalmist, or by the lawgiver, was always God's glory. But now, brethren and sisters, for the first time, one was able to come and exhibit God's glory as his own. He manifested forth His glory. Now, not that that was not God's glory, because it was. You come back to chapter 1 and verse 14, the very familiar words. And John tells us, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. But then John qualifies that. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Now you just think about this. The purpose of that miracle was that Jesus might clearly demonstrate forth his glory, which John had clearly defined as being the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And the miracle opens with the words, and the mother of Jesus was there. That's how the miracle opened. And the mother of Jesus was there. And that's not said, brothers and sisters, lightly. Because you see, weddings, weddings are places where relationships change. In the case of the bride and bridegroom, in the case of the bride in particular, very dramatically when she becomes absorbed, as it were, in her husband's family name and absorbed in his way of life, as he takes her under himself, relationship changed dramatically at weddings. And he manifested his glory as of the only begotten of the Father and the Mother of Jesus was there. And the scene was set, brothers and sisters, for a very wonderful testimony as to our Lord's divine origin, even though it was going to be difficult to express because of the tender feelings of his own mother. All of that is just waiting there to be told us. I believe that that miracle is pregnant with those meanings. Here we have the greatest marriage of all, typified as it were, in this marriage of Cana of Galilee, the greatest marriage of all that was coming on, the marriage of the Lamb. But here is a little cameo of it. Greater than Adam and Eve. Far, far greater. Here is a different bride, a different bridegroom, a different relationship entirely. Things are going to dramatically change at that wedding. Not only water to wine, but relationships are going to change. And people are going to learn a lot of things when the Lord comes to that wedding. My word they are. Now listen to this, brothers and sisters. He manifested forth his glory. Where? In Cana of Galilee. Not in Judea, but as the providence said, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light and upon them who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, light has sprung up and he manifested that glory away from the centre of the, of the Judean system of things, in a region of Galilee of the nations, where people would not have expected it. And the manifestation of that glory was to change water into wine. And the first Public miracle done by our Lord Jesus Christ was set against the first public miracle performed by Moses when he changed water to blood. And there was the beginning of a manifestation of glory both of the law and of grace. And if ever there's a story told where grace superseded the law it's the story of the wedding of Cana of Galilee. And if Moses had a glory as the Jews said he did that we are Moses' disciples. As for this fellow, we know not where he is. If Moses had a glory, well, all he could do was to change water into the symbol, brothers and sisters, but this man gave forth the true one. He gave forth that radiant light, which was to give life to others and to create the bride, which would culminate in that wonderful wedding on the seventh day when all would be perfected and there would be one spirit between him and his bride and there would be a change of relationship, a dramatic change of relationship on that day as he would reveal reveal to them all and in them all the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And that's how John sees this relationship changing. And when we come back to that miracle, look how it's worded. And the third day, that is of course the seventh day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. You know, brethren and sisters, she was not only just there. If you read this carefully, you will find that it's fairly obvious that Jesus was related to those people in that wedding. Because, you see, he was invited, his mother was not only invited, but she. John tells us she was already there. Why does he say that? Because if you read carefully, you'll find that she's heavily involved in the organisation. She comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have no wine. She's running the show. Verse 5, she, the mother said to the servant, whatever he says, do it! So it's fairly obvious that the family of our Lord Jesus Christ is heavily involved in that wedding. And I believe it's the reason why Jesus was invited. And had he gone along there, brethren and sisters, and mixed with those guests on a one-to-one basis, as the expression is, and had he gone through the various functions and performances of that wedding, had he gone along and congratulated the bridegroom for providing everything needful for the feast, and then turned around and thanked his mother for all that she had done, he he would merely make himself a son of Adam. And there never would have been a manifestation of his glory as the only begotten of the Father he would have become completely absorbed in that whole family scene and just seen as the firstborn of Mary. And, you know, brothers and sisters, he was just the opposite to Solomon. Because, you know, Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, of which, of course, was all about the great marriage. And in the midst of that song, Solomon was the right of the glory that he had when his mother crowned him in the day of his espousal. His mother crowned him in the day of his espousal. This man's mother's not going to crown him in the day of his espousal. No way is that going to happen. Because he's going to be the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And that's got to be seen very clearly in this particular feast. And now's the time to demonstrate it because here he commences a completely new mission of course. The mission that he's been called for. Relationships have changed. And everyone's got to see that Right here. Now, we read in verse 2 and both Jesus was called and his disciples. And so there was going to be made at that wedding, brethren and sisters, new wine, and it's going to be put in those six water pots. And neither the wine or the water pots were going to be lost. The wine, I believe, represented the principle of life, the spirit of life, which Jesus was to give all that who were to follow him. And the water pots of stone represent our human nature in which that is deposited as a great treasure that we hold in earthen vessels, that we might hold it, brothers and sisters, that neither we nor the truth is lost in us. Not that we could ever lose the truth for God in that sense. But we can lose that deposit which has been put in us if we smash and break up under the pressures of this life, both Jesus and his disciples were called. And I believe, of course, as we've identified them, he is the bridegroom and they are the bride and they're going to take that feast over. Not that Jesus is going to supplant, of course, on that day, the right of the bride or the bridegroom to have a happy marriage. The Lord didn't come for that purpose. Nor did he want to demonstrate above others that he was, of course, the most important person there for that simple reason's sake. It's not that at all. But now people are going to see that whatever human relationships we enjoy, brethren and sisters, they are utterly subservient to the greatest of all relationships. He is the bridegroom, and we are the bride, and whatever else happens, that supersedes anything in life we can do. We can prepare all we like for this hall. We can spend all night getting it ready. We can march down that aisle with our daughter on our arm or our daughters can come down our aisle. The boy can stand here and look back and smile that smile of sweetness. His heart can radiate the love for that bride but it's nothing in comparison to that great relationship that comes. It's important. It's wonderful. But it bears no comparison that relationship which is coming and Jesus came with his disciples as the bride and the bridegroom and stamped his authority all over that feast that people might understand that. When he left that feast, brothers and sisters, if no one else saw the point, his disciples did. His disciples saw the meaning of it and three times in this chapter John makes comment about the disciples' attitude of mind concerning the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in these matters. Now, they wanted wine. Verse 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus says unto him, they have no wine. You know, brothers and sisters, the Greek for wanteth wine really means the wine failed. That's what the Greek means. It ran out. Now, we might say, well... In an Australian party, that would be a disaster. For different reasons. But you know, brothers and sisters, it was equally a disaster in a party of the Jews for different reasons. We must not run away with the idea that wine was simply unfermented grape juice. It wasn't. It was wine. But it was wine, brothers and sisters, drunk in moderation. And was, of course, a symbol of everything that was glad happy. It's a symbol of teaching. It's a symbol of prosperity. It's a symbol of love. And it's a symbol of sacrifice. It was never a symbol of debauchery. So let's not run away with the idea that we can go off and have a glorious party because Jesus made wine. Because that's not the point of it at all. It was a symbol of gladness and teaching and prosperity and love and joy and happiness and sacrifice. And when that run out It was a disaster because all that was symbolised virtually was then running out. So that was the whole point of it. And of course, it was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide that wine. This very miracle proves that because when the new wine was presented to the governor, he called the bridegroom and congratulated him. So it's a disaster for the bridegroom when that runs out. There is no gladness, nor teaching, nor prosperity, nor love, nor sacrifice on the part of the bridegroom if that runs out. Brothers and sisters, we drink an inexhaustible supply of wine and we do it every Sunday morning. And if we never had the commodity itself, if there were no such thing as wine available on the earth, we could still sit in that seat and drink it in the spirit of it. Because our Lord Jesus Christ's gladness, prosperity, joy, love, and sacrifice is boundless. And He provided it. And we will congratulate Him, and we do every Sunday morning. We congratulate Him for the wonderful way in which He's provided for all of us an inexhaustible supply of wine. But you see, those six water pots of stone were there after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. Obviously John is trying to tell us that there's a contrast between law or Jewish tradition as law and grace. (laughs) Now here's a remarkable thing brethren and sisters. Wine has all that significance as I've told you. And I could turn the scriptures up and you know that. But it just literally abounds. The scripture abounds with references to the symbolic aspect of wine. But think about this. That there was an incident which happened during the inaugural ceremony of the priesthood, arising out of which a law was given whereby the Jewish high priest never drank wine. And in the 10th chapter of Leviticus, at the, at, the, at the very end of the ceremony, when the portions of the offering to be eaten by the people were about, or eaten by the priest rather, on behalf of the people, were about to be consumed, no doubt about by you inebriated with wine, staggered in as be caught and offered strange fire to Yahweh and was smitten to the ground and then the command was given to Aaron he was not to touch wine nor strong drink a high priest of Israel and he can't drink wine the wine failed the wine failed and when the Lord Jesus Christ sat down at the table with the twelve and he took that cup of blessing and he blessed them, he gave them and said this is my blood which is given for you and he went on to say this brethren, and sisters I will not drink henceforth until I drink it anew I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom and he's the great high priest of our profession and there was no such misconduct which forbade him to take into his lips the very symbol of that sacrifice which would bind his disciples together in that new relationship he drank it freely with them and drink it again he will Yet the law, the the wine of the law failed because of the very misconduct of the priest it was never participated in. And here is the Lord coming to this feast and here is the tragedy that the wine has run out. And no doubt, brothers and sisters, perhaps even the arrival of those seven men, those six who were with him, James and John, Peter and Andrew, Philip and Nathaniel, but no doubt with the Lord himself is making the seven, perhaps that put a strain upon the supply of wine. Who knows? Who cares? The fact is, it ran out. And there's the significance of it. Now, the mother of our Lord has got, a, got, a, got, a, got the solution. She comes to her son and she says, They've got no wine. She's going to make everything right. She's got, obviously, got some measure of control here. She's got, got some organization. She's in control of that. And she's going to solicit the service of her son. Now, brethren and sisters, we know the calibre of Mary and I'm not here to denigrate her character in any way, shape or form. As a matter of fact, her character literally beams out of this record. But, she's human. She couldn't rise to those things any more than we could at that moment of time. We could left her than she could. Who could understand him at this stage? And the answer? Woman. What have I to do with thee? And there, brothers and sisters, is one of the keys of that parable. The parable of that first sign. Relationships have changed. No way can we ever say that that word woman was, was, was given disrespectfully. He didn't say it disrespectfully. As a matter of fact, brothers and sisters, the term is used in many, on many occasions in a very respectful way, both to other women and to his mother. From the the cross itself, he looked down upon that woman and said, woman, thy son, behold thy son. No way could it ever be imagined that that could be disrespectful. But however softly, however pathetically it was said, however respectfully, it was not mother. That's the point. And whatever we were to gloss over and say that Jesus was not disrespectful, he did not say mother. And that's the whole point of it. The mother of Jesus was there. But he didn't see her as such. She was but another woman. It doesn't mean to say that she wasn't his mother. She was. But relationships have changed with him. What have I to do with thee? Is stronger again. And we might ameliorate the use of the word Woman. But you can look up your concordance on every occasion except one, I think, where you'll find the expression what have I to do with thee? It always indicates two different ways of thinking. Two different viewpoints with no common factor. And however we like to ameliorate the use of the term woman, there's no way we can get around the term what have I to do with thee? And the Lord is saying very clearly Woman, we have nothing in common over this matter. Now, what was it that they didn't have in common? See, he knew the motive behind the words of his mother. What was it then that that she thought that he had nothing in common with? Well, you see, the hint, brethren and sisters, comes in verse 4. My hour is not yet come. And obviously what the Lord is saying is not so much that the time has not come to make the wine, because it was only a matter of moments when he did. It wasn't that so much. But it's clearly obvious what was in the back of his mother's mind, as it would be in the back of any parent's mind. She had lived with that boy for 30 years. And she may have tended him as a little child, brothers and sisters, but somewhere beyond the age of 12, or who knows even before it, she had come to heavily rely upon that boy. And more so, as it's indicated that Joseph had passed off the scene. And she would turn to Jesus in every circumstance in that house. And he never failed her. And that engendered a little pride. And she thought, well, I'll depend upon him again, he won't fail me. And I don't believe Mary for a moment thought, well, we'll get him to manifest a bit of glory here for glory's sake that we might glory over my boy. I don't think that entered into her mind, but it would have been impossible for anyone, brothers and sisters, in those circumstances not to have a tinge of pride in someone who never lets you down. And she felt, as the very answer of our Lord indicated, that he would manifest his glory for glory's sake, he says, look, woman, that hour hasn't come. The hour had not come when the Son of Man would be glorified before all men, not for glory's sake, but for his heavenly Father's sake. That hour had not come as she thought it had. And in that respect, brothers and sisters, he was to tell her, we've got nothing in common. And you think about the impact of that upon Mary. Every mother in this hall would understand in measure how she'd feel. Our sons and our daughters, brethren and sisters, deserve to call us mum and dad and that's what they ought to do. And we would not stand to be called mother or rather woman or man or I even hesitate to express the old man which I detest We wouldn't bear that in our house. You imagine how that woman felt and the pain that pierced her soul, as Simeon said, began. The sword was thrust through her, piercing her soul. How could she contemplate that? What have I to do with thee? What would you do? Well, this is what she did. Verse 5. His mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. That's what she, how she reacted, brother and sister. And that would not have been the reaction of an ignorant woman, who, not understanding what was said at any anyway, rate, thought, well, well, let him go on and do what he It would not be done like that because if we went, we showed up at the Easter camp up at Glenlock, did we not? Time and time again, we were told by Luke that Mary pondered these things in her heart, and the different Greek expressions were used to show the measure and the depth of her pondering. She was a thoughtful woman. She was not unthoughtful. She would not be ignorant. She would be cut to the quick by that statement of woman. But it did not, brethren and sisters, upset her confidence in that in her son. And in that, I believe, there is a splendid example. I believe it's worthwhile going home and thinking about that. But if we got nothing else out of this this, story, this talk tonight, brethren and sisters, you go home and think about that. That a woman has to suffer that humiliation from her own voice and still look the servant in the eye and says whatever he says, do It's the measure of that woman's faith, trust and love of that son. Truly she is a remarkable woman. The more I come across Mary in this record, the more I understand why she among all the women in the world was chosen to be the mother of our Lord. Blessed is she that believes is the expression of Elizabeth. Blessed is she that believed. And she didn't believe, brethren and sisters, in easy circumstances. And this story is often told, sometimes to the denigration of poor Mary, who suffers what could have been considered as a mild rebuke. But there is a towering example in that verse of a woman who saw above the personal hurt, brethren and sisters, and knew, in measure at least, the purpose which her son had in life, must have known it in measure. Didn't always understand it in its fullness, but in measure began to see where it was all coming. And when he finally looked down upon that cross and changed her relationship, woman, behold thy son. Here it was beginning to sever. There it was finally severed. And when mortality was swallowed up by immortality and relationships were completely changed, physically, He sat at the right hand of the father, brethren and sisters. She was handed over to another man. That's your son. And would have been glad to be be, be included in a little group of people known as his children. I am the children whom the father hath given me. His own mother among that group. And in the end, glad to be there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren, and the hundred and twenty of them were one accord in Acts chapter 1. Glad to be there among the children of the Lord Jesus Christ. She suffered all of that and her relationship will be changed. And she will be absorbed not only into his little family as children as Hebrews tells us, but she will be incorporated in the body and as the bride of Christ. His own mother. But she must understand that because here is the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And that's the whole point of telling us about His mother. Now these six water pots of stone we read about in verse 6. Very interesting that, brethren and sisters. Very interesting indeed. We're all well aware, of course, that six is the number of man. We can't dispute that. Man was created on the sixth day. The number of the Antichrist is the number of a man. Six. 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 We're told that in Revelation, the number of a man. So we got six water pots. The water pots were of stone, that is where they were earthen vessels. And we got the estate of the apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So there they were. The six water pots of stone, and they were there, filled or partly filled with water, because they were to be filled later. Has have been partly used, John says, according to the purification or the purifying of the Jews. That's an interesting comment, brethren and sisters. The purifying of the Jews. The purifying in question was not entirely from the Mosaic law. We have no reference to any such purifying in relation to weddings. But it was that traditional way about the Jews when they placed their own impositions upon themselves above that of the law and made all sorts of washings of the cups and platters and of the elbows and of the hands and of the forearms and all sorts of ridiculous lengths they went according to the purifying of the Jews. Now, I want to show you something which I think is very, very interesting. One of those six disciples that were there was Peter. Now, you follow me in Acts chapter 11. I wonder where Peter's mind was, brothers and sisters. When this happened, he was sent to Cornelius. Remember? And he had a lot of difficulty about that because he suffered the criticism in chapter 11 of Acts, in Acts chapter 11, he suffered the criticism in verse 3, when some were saying, thou wentest in to men uncircumcised and did eat with them. In other words, Peter, you went in to the unclean. And Peter went over the matter and explained to them how it was not just simply his decision, how that God had appeared to him, and that he was divinely directed to Cornelius. And in verse 12 he says, And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. And we entered into the man's house. So he took six water pots with him. And they were all Jews, obviously, because they were witnesses. And a Gentile would not be an accredited witness in that situation. It would have to be a Jew, wouldn't it? Who would witness to the fact that Peter was divinely directed to Cornelius. So there Peter, who was in that wedding at Cana of Galilee, took six with him who were all of them absorbed with the purifying of the Jews. Now over in Acts 15 we read this. When Peter's rehearsing this incident along with others, he said this. In Acts 15 and verses 7 and 8 and when there had been much disputing Peter rose up and said unto them men and brethren ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe and God which knows the heart bear them witness giving them the Holy Spirit even as he did unto us and put no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by faith so there he is, he turns up to the unclean with six Jewish water pots, all absorbed with purifying. And he comes to a Gentile and finds out, brothers and sisters, that God purifies the heart by faith. And there were six witnesses to that. And there they were all there, standing up alongside of Peter, just as they were standing about the court, outside of the court where the wedding was taking place. All of them about to witness. A remarkable change that nobody could have ever have, have conceived in their mind. That instead of getting washed with water, they're going to be, they're going to have to drink wine which is going to go down internally. And to give them a spirit of vitality and warmth that water could never do to their externals. And they're going to learn the principle that God purifies the heart by faith. And never mind about water pots of stone. And when we get back to that story in John, how wonderful that lesson was learned. And when we come back here, brothers and sisters, we read this. These stone pots were all standing there, we read in verse 6, they were sat there. They were all standing. The word means to lay along. They were all standing there. Six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Quite a lot of water. About 120 odd gallons in total. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them to the brim. They filled them to the brim. Everyone would have got the impression, brethren and sisters, that a lot of purifying was going to go on. Yes, there was, but not what they thought. And then we read this. He said in verse 8, draw out now and bear under the governor of the feast and they bear it. The word there to draw out really is an expression which is more related to drawing water out of wells than, than wine out of bottles. As if the Lord Jesus Christ was directing the brethren and sisters to the wellspring of the spirit of life. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of water as he made reference to himself as the spirit would flow out of him. And there would be those who would come and drink. He that is a thirst, let him come to me and drink. And referring to himself as a wellspring of life in the seventh chapter of John, he called upon all those to come over and to draw of that water of life. And he made reference to those water pots as if they were wells of water. With joy, says the prophet, shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation? And the Lord saw those water pots as being symbolic of the great of God to change men's lives as he would change that wine. Now, we read in verse 9 that there was a ruler of the feast he's the manager really, they had a, they had a manager in those days who was the overseer of the feast, he was like a, a what we would call an MC and there was this ruler of the feast Remember verse 9 brethren and sisters, we read this When this manager of the feast had tasted the water that was made, wine, they knew not whence it was. And then you get this comment in brackets. But the servants which drew the water knew. Now, here we've got a very interesting statement. Nobody knows about that change, and who could know? Nobody's told in that room that there's been a change. It's not as if the Lord comes in and says, I'm going to make wine. He just makes it. But the woman, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ says, do what he says. Do what he says. And you know, brethren and sisters, nobody will ever understand the will of God unless you do what he said. And you can be in this room and never perceive the work of God unless you do what he says. And you know that is absolutely true. It is true in theory and it is true in practice. You can read in the scriptures that God is love. And you can make a note that the word is agape. But unless we do the will of God and experience his love, we'll never know it. And nobody in that room knows That's wine, except those who do exactly what he said. Now, they're called the servants. The word in the Greek is that word from whence we get our word deacon, which, among other things, means really to serve on tables. And it would appear to me, brethren and sisters, and we cannot prove this beyond all doubt, but if you look at verse 11, it says, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory and His disciples believed on Him. Now there were just six of them and there were just six waterfalls. How would they know that the miracle had been performed unless they saw it? If nobody in that room, as the ruler of the feast, if He didn't know nobody else did, if he didn't know it, nobody else did. How did they know it if they weren't the ones who were doing exactly what he said? And it would appear to me that that was what was happening. So the ministers were waiting upon the tables were in effect those very disciples. Just six of them. One per water pot. And they were in the process, brethren and sisters, every one of them of being filled to the brim. And time and time again, do we read in the the records, that Jesus broke the bread and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And on several occasions, the Lord transferred to his disciples the, 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 the privilege of giving to the multitude what he had given. And they became his ministers, distributing things around on his behalf. And they all came back on those two occasions and with the 4,000 and the 5,000 bringing their fragments with them, learning their own lessons, carrying their own baskets, with the individual lessons being borne in upon them that if nobody else got the point, they did. And those disciples believed on him. And nobody else knew that. The servants that drew the water knew it. Ho ye that thirst, come, says the prophet. Come to the well, buy Wine and milk without price. But you've got to come and buy. You've got to come and draw that water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, said the woman of Samaria to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave us this well? And Jesus said, He that drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but he that drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Jacob might have given that well to those people, brethren and sisters, but if they were not prepared to come and partake of the water that he was to give them, they would die thirst. It's all a question of coming and drawing and believing and doing exactly what he said. And when that is done, then we know that a miracle has been performed. And the miracle is in your own life. If water is changed into wine, it was brothers and sisters, but half the miracle. The other half was that men were changed into the sons of God. That's the point. And there were six of them here who were in the process of that change. You know, as I say, in verse 9, when the governor of the feast tasted the wine, he called the bridegroom to congratulate him upon the splendour, the texture, the taste of that wine, which was now presented surprisingly at the last. And isn't that wonderful, brethren and sisters? Isn't that absolutely wonderful? That, that is exactly what will happen. That is exactly what will happen the very best wine will come at the end. It will. It will come at the end. Do you know that when the Lord died, he spilled his blood on our behalf. Wine was ever then the symbol of that blood. Every Sunday morning we get that wine. That's not the best wine. It's the very best that is given to that point. But the best wine will be last. I will not drink it, except I drink it a new. It's not just a repetition, brethren and sisters, of that feast. It isn't just another memorial meeting. I will drink it anew with you. It'll be a different wine. And the wine that we will drink on that occasion will be life itself. The life of God. The divine nature. Drunk deeply. And death will be swallowed up in victory, brothers and sisters. That's the wine that we will drink. This is my blood which is given to you. He that drinketh of this, says the Lord Jesus Christ, has life. Has life now in the sense of a promise. In the sense, brothers and sisters, of anticipation. But when he sits down there at the judgment seat and we drink it of you, then that'll be the very best wine we'll ever take up. No doubt about that at all. That'll be tremendous wine. And the rule of the feast judged correctly. He said, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. What he was saying here would appear to be somewhat jocular. Because you see, the Greek expression, well drunk, literally means to be drunk. You know, brothers and sisters, in a jocular way, he expressed an absolute truism. But men, he said, are very careful. They only present the best when it can be perceived. But when men are saturated and their senses have left them, then they bring forth their real traits. That's true of human nature. Men are all like that. Men want to make first impression. The first impression's got to be the greatest impression. When they think they got you fooled, they'll act like the goat. That's men. Men have never been like that. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in the very answer of his mother, not that his mother thought like that, but there was a, a, a relationship nonetheless there. His mother thought that he would show forth his glory. Then this was the time. But that's not how the Lord Jesus Christ sees. Let him partake of the suffering. Let him drink the dregs of the cruel cup of pain and suffering before he drank the sweetness of the new wine. Let him do that first. Men won't do that, but God does. He's the very opposite of the way God acts, brothers and sisters, is the way man acts. And the man in his jocular way was was expressing a truth. And it's absolutely true what he said. Manages exactly like that. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee when he manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Let's conclude, brethren and sisters, with a little comparison back in Isaiah 24 and 25. Isaiah 24, the wine is failing. It's failing now, brethren and sisters, very fast. Rapidly failing. Because in verse 1, Yahweh's making the earth empty. He's making it waste. He turns it upside down. The economies of the world, verses 2 and 3, the lender, the buyer, the seller, the giver of usury, the taker of usury, they're all upside down. And then in verse 7, the new wine mourneth, the vine languisheth, all the merry-hearted do sigh. Take away the wine, take away the happiness. The mirth of the tablet ceases, the noise of them that rejoice endeth, the joy of the heart ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. The wine has failed. But the next chapter, brothers and sisters, in verse 6, in the context of all these words, the promise is in verse 6, And in this mountain shall Yahweh of armies make unto all the people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the leaves. A feast of, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the leaves, well refined, the very best wine. And what's that going to be? Verse 8, He will swallow up death in victory. That's the wine, verse is it? And that's, quotation, Isaiah twenty five and verse eight is found in First Corinthians fifteen, isn't it? He will swallow up death in victory. That's the very best wine. Let the earth go mad, let it be turned upside down. But the wine's failing, brothers and sisters. The wine, the best wine of man which he's trotted out and feasted himself on, is gone. And now all the hearts are mourning. The laughter's dying down. And the grimness of life is gripping humanity. But wait. The very best wine is coming. It is going to come last. And in the mountain of Yahweh's making, where Yahweh of Armies will be manifest, brethren and sisters, it will be spread before us and we will see a wine beautifully refined. It's great, grape. It's a symbol of new life. We will see the mellowness, the wonderful taste and the warmth and vitality of the best of all the wine left till the very end. Death. Is swollen up in victory. If wine is a symbol of life, brothers and sisters, there it is. There's the very best left to last. And when they left that priest, that little wedding in Cana of Galilee, there were six disciples following him, filled to the brim. On that occasion, they would have leaked their vessels out. Yes, they were, and filled up again and again and again. But they went away there, and John says, and his disciples believed on him. And they've been filled up. With that new wine, because they were new bottles. They weren't the old men who were not prepared to change for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. They were men who were prepared to change their lives as that water was changed to wine. And they left that feast full and aglow with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ manifesting his Father's power as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us continue in our race for life, brothers and sisters. Let us continue... And the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he'll hand that cup to us. Not literally, of course, but symbolically. And we will drink. And there will be a culmination of a marriage, the marriage of the Lamb, having made herself ready. And now the Lord changes us into his own image. And as Eve was created for Adam on the sixth day, so the bride of Christ will be finally created on the seventh day, and there'll be a great and a glorious marriage. And we'll look back at that marriage in Cana of Galilee and we'll say, well, if that was the beginning of his glory, look at the end of it. What a marvellous end it is, brethren and sisters. It worked every endeavour to strive together for the faith of the gospel that we might help each other in that great and glorious wedding.